Happy Monday, Liberty Lovers. And before we get into today's interview, I want to let you know, guess what? You could have heard this whole thing. You could have seen it live. If only you were a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride. If you supported us on Patreon, you can do that over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. We do live streams for most, if not all, of my interviews. And we will be live streaming for patrons exclusively all five debates that are coming up in August. That's right. August is debate month. It's my birthday month, and there are five Mondays in August. I have five flagship Lions of Liberty podcasts, and I am hosting five freaking debates starting here next week. The first debate, by the way, I'm not hosting it. I'm participating it against Eric Brakey talking about whether Edward Snowden's reveal was a net positive for Liberty. That's going to be next Monday, but you could have seen it all. You can see it all live as it happens by joining the pride for as little as $5 a month. You also get access to all of our exclusive bonus audio and video content, including conspiracy corner, degenerate gamblers, Brian McWilliams daily show. Good morning. Fuckhead. There is just so much freaking awesome content for as little as $5 a month. Check it out over at patreon.com slash lions of Liberty. Welcome to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. All right, Kitty Cats, with me today, he is an agorist. He is a cypherpunk. He is a disintermediator. He is a crypto anarchist, a podcaster, a blogger, and he has recently, and I, I do quite literally mean literally yesterday recently, released a brand new book that he assembled called Anti-Politics. I'm very pleased to welcome Sal Mayweather, a.k.a. Sal the Agorist. Sal, are you ready to roar? Yes, of course. Let's do this. All right, brother. Really excited to have you on, man. And um, I think we should just start at the beginning, wherever that may be for you. When did you turn from just regular Sal Mayweather into Sal the Agorist? Take it from wherever you, wherever you think is appropriate. Oh, man. It was really like a sort of uh, slow evolution. But I say like the, I guess the defining moment, there was two defining moments. One, I became an anarchist by listening to the Tom Wood show. That's what sort of converted me from minarchist to anarchism. I was always sort of like a history buff, like a history kind of nerd. And I didn't want to take on the anarchist moniker because no one's going to take you seriously if you're an anarchist. But uh, one day I heard Tom Woods mention a guy named Ralph Rako <clears throat> and I, uh, a historian named Ralph Rako. So I looked this guy up and I'm like, man, this guy reminds me of like someone's grandpa or something. He's completely normal and he's an anarchist. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, maybe, I, maybe I will give this Rothbard guy a shot. And then it was just all downhill from there that I wasn't, um, I still wasn't an agorist though. That came later. Like, I don't know, 2014, 15, something like that. I went to Porkfest and I had like a really sort of like transformative experience. Like I went from talking about uh, sound money and precious metals and cryptocurrency to using sound money and precious metals and cryptocurrency in exchange, right? We went from discussing 3D printed guns to actually 3D printing guns, from discussing aquaponics to actually like building aquaponic systems and learning how to do all of this at Porkfest. 
Um, so I came back from there and I was just sold and I was just, I just don't head first into all of it. Yeah. There, there is something, I mean, uh, it, for me, it was very recently actually when I, I the first time that I had a couple, I have some freelance work I do and I had a client that actually paid me in Bitcoin and it just kind of hit me. It was like, that was the first time I've actually been paid in a cryptocurrency and, and the first time I was paid sort of outside the confines of the state outside of the IRS, so to speak. So there was like a little bit of a chill that went up my spine saying, okay, all right. I'm actually doing something here now. Um, so I understand that feeling. I'm sure it was, you know, something different being at Porkfest and doing, you know, interacting with everybody there. Yeah, of course. But I mean, if you think about it, it's sort of like the first peer to peer transaction in, in a monetary commodity that you've made, you know, that's, that's a revolutionary movement right there. You've done more just in that one act than all of those politicians who spent their careers pushing HR 24 that got nowhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to I tick back a little more. So before you stumbled upon the Tom Woods show and kind of, you know, led you down the philosophical path of, of anarchism, where were you before that? How did you even wind up listening to the Tom Woods show in the first place? So I was like always like a constitutional uh, conservative kind of guy, like small government kind of dude. Um, and then I remember watching one of the Ron Paul debates. I don't remember which one, but uh, he, like I remember thinking to myself, all of these people like that I'm supposed to like choose which one I want to be president out of this group. They all sound like lunatics to me. The only one who actually makes any sense is that little old guy who I'm supposed to think is crazy that the people in the news tell me that he's, he's the crazy one. So I thought, you know, I better look into this guy. And that sort of, from there, I found Walter Block. I found uh, Peter Schiff. I sort of got lucky because I found the economics side of things first. So I got into cryptocurrency and, and stuff early, which, which helped, but yeah. Um, you know, like I said, it was always like a constitutionalist and then Ron Paul sort of opened my eyes to all of it. And then Tom Woods and Porkfest. And here we are today. Yeah, you mentioned the economic side of things and uh, how, how important do you think that is to people? Because I think I used to kind of dismiss it, not to, not dismiss the, the, you know, the, the idea of having that knowledge. Of course, it's, it's good to have as much knowledge about everything. But when I came into things, it just wasn't what inspired me necessarily. I wasn't upset because the government didn't understand economics properly. I was upset because they were killing people overseas and throwing people in jail right. for owning plants and that sort of thing. But the further I've gone on here in this whole liberty movement you know, or whatever you want to call it, the more that I whenever I see people that start to really drift away from the the sort of the base concepts of, of libertarian ideas and you see them just take off on these wild tangents and sort of leave libertarianism, even if they might call themselves libertarianism, libertarian still, um, it always seems like those are the ones that that didn't really have that grounding in economics. So while it's not what excited me and drew me in, in some ways it does kind of feel like it keeps me at a certain base because, you know, I'm not going to fly completely off the reservation because I still have this logical grounding of he, uh, you know, here keeping me that way. Whereas others, if they just were in it for the legal pot, you know, they might not have that same, same firm grounding. For sure. And that's, um, that's like a key point you make right there. And that's the same point that Hans Hoppe makes in the introduction to uh, Democracy, the God that Failed, right? And that's like, he discusses it in the context of like history. You can't really have a proper understanding of history if you don't understand how these events are playing out. And the only way to understand that is to study praxeology and Austrian economics and stuff like that. So I agree, you can't really, you can't really have a firm grounding without a proper understanding of the economics, at least a basic understanding. You don't have to be friggin' Per Byland or Walter Block, but you just have to have like a basic concept, not be a complete moron. You know, a lot of economics is sort of intuitive, I think. You know, mm-hmm. if you can understand a supply and demand chart, that's like 85% of it. Of course, I'm simplifying things, but you get the point. 
It's almost like it's so logical that you, we almost had to unlearn it. I think our, our schooling actually had to like train us in this other sort of mystical view of macroeconomics and and what have you for us to unlearn just the very basic logic of of you know this guy has this thing, this is object, this guy wants it, he has m- this amount of money, he agrees to accept it, and they made this exchange. And if you just base it off that very base logic, um, it, you know it's hard to get it's hard to take seriously too much the the macro wizardry that we are are taught later on down the road yeah and they try to like a lot of the modern day philosophers and scientists so to speak to use that word very loosely they like they don't even accept a priori truths like to them like the idea of an a priori truth is just sort of nonsense where obviously you know this if it's something if it can't be refuted if it's just true at, at face value then i don't even understand how you couldn't uh can take that into consideration when you construct a whole political economic philosophy. Yeah, it's like there's become kind of a, a postmodern view of economics. And I guess if you have that view, if you say, well, there can't really be any economic truth, any real laws here, well then heck, that gives them license to to do this. What I what I just I don't know if I just dubbed that term today, macro wizardry, but that's <laughs> that's what it is. It's really just mysticism. It's look at this, look at these charts, look at these graphs. If we run enough of these formulas together, we're gonna figure out the right way to tax you just enough to get this right GDP number. And here we have economics. But of course, that's all nonsense. Yeah. And the praxeology is the opposite, right? In praxeology, we start from like a a firm, an a priori truth. And then we just sort of deduct all of these different implications that in like that, you know, one of the things Walter Block told me is like, that is economics. Like there's no difference, right? People confuse like logic and economics, but really economics is logic. You know, it's, it's just sort of like a, a subset of logic. Yeah. And there, we're always kind of battling these, these arguments from authority, especially when someone like you or I, maybe someone who's quote unquote, just a podcaster or just a, whatever we may be in life wants to have this a discussion that, that kind of delves into the economic side of things. You know, you'll get something like, well, oh, I'm sure you know more than Paul Krugman. I'm sure you know more. Right, yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, I, I've, yeah, no, dude, oh man, I can tell you stories. I can remember being in New York City and like having, getting to arguments with like the lady next to me and she'd be like, you need to read Thomas Pickett. And I'm like, you need to read Ludwig von Mises. And then, you know, somebody would get up and storm out of the restaurant. <laughs> Let's trade books, but it never really ended <laughs> yeah, that <right>. way. <laughs> no, never. All right, guys, I got to take a quick time out to tell you about our newest sponsors, Paloma Verde CBD. I am so excited about this sponsorship for a number of reasons. One, CBD is a freaking miracle. CBD has helped me with so many things in life from insomnia to joint and muscle issues. You know, I'm old, guys. I just hit 40 last year. I'm almost 41, almost 40 freaking one. I can use CBD. It really helps me out a lot. And uh, Vanessa and Carlos Abelar, who run this company, Paloma Verde, they are an awesome libertarian couple, the kind of couple you want to support in life, just like you want to support this podcast. Well, guess what? When you purchase your CBD from Paloma Verde over at PalomaVerdeCBD.com, you get to do it all. You get to support this amazing family. You get to support uh, my Latin American community. Of course, I'm married into a, a Mexican family, so I'm, I'm essentially a Latin American at this point as well. Uh, you get to support the Latin American community <laughs> and uh, you also get an amazing product. Not only all of that, you get to support this podcast at the same time. We, of course, get a kickback from these sales and you get a huge discount by using our discount code. That discount code is ROAR, R-O-A-R. Use that discount code at checkout and you're going to get 25% off your order. 25 freaking percent off your order. And they have awesome stuff. Like I said, my favorites, I have them right here, actually. These uh, premium CBD gummies. These are legit. And I'm not kidding. The, the only bad part about these gummies 
is that they're so delicious that I kind of just want to eat them all at once. And you really don't need to eat all that CBD at once. Um, the gummies are delicious. These amazing salves they have. I tried one of these salves on my neck. I got a neck issue, guys. My neck's always sore, always hurting me. This salve, it is freaking magic, the salve that I use. You got to check out these products. As I chew on, as I choke on the CBD gummy, um, check it all out. PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Do not forget to use discount code ROAR for 25% off your order. It does have to be an order over $75, but guess what? You also get free shipping over $75, so you're going to want to do it. Check it out. PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Discount code ROAR. Really what I want to get into today is a lot more of the concept of agorism. It's something that it comes up all the time. Uh, it's always sort of part of the conversation. Conversation, but I really want to dive all the way into it and really get to the core of what this word means, what it really means to you, uh, how it affects what you do in life, how you conduct your life, the actions that you take every single day, how they are all filtered through this idea of agorism. So I'll let you take it from wherever you want. You can maybe get into the little, the little bit of the history of agorism if you like, but give people just kind of a, a primer for exactly what ag- agorism is, at least to you. Oh man, well, I guess what agorism is to me is sort of always changing and it's sort of like always kind of like in flux. But I'd say, you know, generally speaking, uh, agorism is sort of like the use of counter-economics to try to like obtain a free society, right? It's the idea that uh, we can use the free market to undermine or subvert the state. Um, You know, the counter-economy consists of all voluntary transactions that take place uh, outside the purview of the state. And we believe that that's the way to achieve freedom. Um, obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. You know, we can get into, you know, Sam Conkin's philosophy, and he lays out four phases for the Agorist Revolution um, in the New Libertarian Manifesto. But, you know, if you think about it, um, we're really just sort of, we're, we're proposing a paradigm shift here, whereas you get guys from like the Libertarian Party, and then you have other libertarians who are promoting like a more paleo-libertarian approach they're sort of like promoting the same thing, right? They're just saying we have to stick within the confines of the party system, whereas we agorists are saying, no, 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 this has failed. This has been a disaster, right? Political parties have either been powerless to stop the present day tyranny or they've been complicit in creating it. So let's try something new. Let's let's wipe the slate completely clean and try something new. And we have come up, well, Sam Konkin has come up with counter-economics. He didn't really come up with it so much as he discovered it. Sure, it's probably been, been happening for as long as there have been governments. There have been people out operating outside of those governments. Oh, man. And I, I've got a whole section of my book dedicated to, like, counter-economics in practice. And, like, we just sort of go over, like, all these different times that it's been applied throughout history. But, you know, I only have, like, you know, four or five, six chapters, seven chapters, whatever it is, in that section. I could have done a whole book just on that. I mean, consider, you know, consider how, you know, we, we spoke, we already mentioned HR 24. I hope I'm getting the name of that bill right, the Art of the Fed bill. Like, consider what was more successful, that effort or Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper, right? Like, what, what, what's been more efficient at protecting your right to bear arms, Cody Wilson or the NRA or small government Republicans or Gary Johnson or any of these people put together haven't been just one iota as efficient as Cody Wilson has? Um, Ross Ulbricht, right? He created a truly free and open market by disintermediating the state using technology, right? He was, he used, uh, he was like an innovative entrepreneur, right? Which is sort of the key to agorism. Like not all agorism, uh, not all entrepreneurship is agorist, but all agorism is entrepreneurial. So I guess my point here is that it's a much more efficient way to defeat the state. It's the only thing that works. We have a history of it working, 
you know, it goes back even further. We could talk about like Gandhi and like the Soviet Union and all sorts of different examples. But I think at the end of the day, and I guess, I guess this goes back to what you originally asked, like, what does it mean to you? It's like the Agora is just the market. It's like the state of affairs. It's like God, right? It's just the way things are. That's what the Agora is. And the state is any attempt to distort or disrupt that. And it's, that's like, to me, that's, that's pure evil. So in a way, Agorism is almost like spiritual for me. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a sort of like a, a state of of being, a state of nature, and here we are just doing our best to describe it and, and act it out. Exactly. Yeah. Right. True. I want to dive into a few of the examples you mentioned a little bit. One I want to just hit on right away is Ross Albrecht, and you mentioned Ross Albrecht uh, clearly an agorist, clearly upwriting well outside the the uh, the, the confines of the state. Um, it clearly opened up a market, showed people how this could be done, how people could exchange freely, how people could use cryptocurrencies to do that. Um, but at the same time, we look at someone like Ross Albrecht. And where is he now? He's in prison. Now, that doesn't mean what he did was wrong. Obviously, in the libertarian sense, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, but when we look at the real world effects, do you see any potential danger in certain agorist paths? Because for Ross Ulbrich, it did become a danger. And now, you know, he may still be influential in the sense that many people are inspired by what, what he did, uh, inspired by the creation of the Silk Road, uh, inspired by the way he stood up to the state. Uh, but for his own life, I mean, his own life is completely ruined. Um, his his mother spends spends her days you know talking about her son but and and it's wonderful the message that she's spreading but here her son is in jail so i i just wonder what your thoughts are on on how you reconcile that aspect of things if you think that you know it is it up to like maybe just the individual what kind of risk you're willing to take to display more freedom in your own life and how you would weigh that against the potential of running into the state who doesn't want you doing that well, revolution is inherently risky. And if we're going to if we're going to take a beating from the state, I'd rather it be in defense of my rights than, you know, begging for permission to, you know, smoke a joint or something. You know, I didn't pay a seatbelt ticket or something like that. So, you know, it, it, you're right. It is risky. But I think, you know, like, again, again, I'm like all revolutionary tactics are risky, at least in this case, no one's dying as of yet. Um, you know, there are have been agorists who've died, obviously, you know, see Erwin Schiff. He died in a prison cell. but. Uh, you know, I still think it's a, it's a much more efficient way of fighting the state. The fact that there aren't people dying in other factions of the libertarian movement is probably an indicator that they're not they're not really hitting them where it hurts. Yeah, and that's I mean, the idea of of dying for for your freedom is is a, a tough one to reconcile in many ways for a lot of people because. At the same time, at one, at one time, this is our life. You know, this is our life. This is worth living for as far as I'm concerned, because he, here we are. Right. And so, yes, we want as much freedom as possible. But if I end my own life in that process, have I really gained any more freedom? Or maybe I have. Maybe I've gained it for others, depending on what I've done along the way. I think where it becomes even more difficult are for people that maybe have a family, people that have a wife and three kids. You might be willing to put your neck on the line for your principles or what have you. But then you have to think about what happens to them if something happens to me right. uh, and I, I'm just waxing away here, but uh, I'm just kind of, how, how do you reconcile this in your own life? Cause obviously you have your own, but you probably have your own limits to, to how far your agorism would go, or maybe you don't, but how do you, how do you rec reconcile this in sort of the, the way you act day, day in and day out when it comes to your own activities? Well, you're exactly right. Like, um, you know, that's why I tell people, uh, you know, the true heroes really are the sovereign citizens, right? Because um, they're the ones who say, I'm free. And if you want to, like, if you want to come fuck around and find out, right, that's where that comes from. But 
Those are the guys that like just that they they renounce yeah. like driver's licenses and yes. like any connection to any government at all. And then yeah. and they actually some of them are actually I'm sure some end up in trouble. But I mean, I've seen stories of ones that actually just live that way and they end up. Yeah, a lot of them get into shootouts on the side of the road with like the state police and that die, though. So, yeah, that can happen. yeah, we don't we, I agree with what you originally said. You don't want to die. If you die, you can't you can't fight the bastards off. Right. So there's no point in doing that. That's why we say like in the shadows be the gray man operational security goes a long way make sure you're you know you're using encrypted communications and secure computing and make sure your privacy protocols are in place there's all sorts of different you know measures to put into place there that we can talk about but operational security goes a long way don't die for any of this don't you don't want to go to jail stay out of jail if you can you know russ put all sorts of security measures into place and ultimately they weren't sufficient but he it's not like he was trying to sacrifice himself up to the you know the altar of the state or anything like that we don't want to go to jail like i said uh be the gray man try to blend into the background and i think that's that's the sort of the key here and if you look at all successful counter economics that's how it's done you know that's sort of like the difference between us and the book boys right we don't we don't want open confrontation we understand that like to fight them like face to face in the battlefield is going to be a disaster. That's how we all die real quick. We don't want that. So stay in the shadows, guerrilla warfare style operation, um, but do it with a keen understanding of, of economics. And I think if you do that, you're forced down the road of agorism. Yeah, the agorist method is not really to be waving your hands and saying, look at us, do, do it this way. This is the way things should be. Uh, it's really to just make the own actions in your own life. Uh, and and perhaps you end up leading by example by people just seeing the way you're living, as opposed to people seeing you at a political rally and saying, oh, what, what's that guy talking about? Well, exactly. And, you know, going back to what you said about risk, like everybody has a different risk tolerance. This is something else that Konkin talks about. I don't know if it's in the primer or in the manifesto, but... You know, we all have a different risk tolerance. We have to calculate that. And I think he even actually provides like a very specific mathematical formula that you can use to calculate your risk tolerance. But, uh, you know, again, obviously somebody with a family is going to have a much lower risk tolerance than someone who's, you know, 16 or 17 years old, some single guy who's got, you know, little, little to lose. So, you know, we all have to take those things into consideration and just do the best we can. In a certain sense, to some degree, we're all counter economy. Right. We no one follows the law perfectly because there are just too many laws to abide by, even if you wanted to. So to some degree, we all are already engaging in agorism. We just don't know it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, three felonies a day a day is the book. And that book is based on the fact that everyone essentially on average they say commits three felonies a day just by going about our daily lives so i mean there, there's not a, a, a human being at least in the united states of america that is an adult at an adult age that hasn't broken laws it's, it's simply impossible because you can't go about your daily life so yeah that's i never thought of it that way but yeah in a sense we're all agorists whether we want to be or not so we may as well be in, in some way shape or form right I, I guess I, sh I guess I should clarify though that just breaking the law isn't isn't agorism, right? That's that's mm -hmm. I guess I would classify that more as like civil disobedience or passive resistance. But you have to combine that. You have to combine black or gray market activity with some degree of entrepreneurship, right? That's that's the key. You have to sort of you have to be. If you think about it again, going back to how we started this conversation, right? If you have a proper understanding of economics, we we know that. Only the entrepreneur can allocate resources in the economy. So to reallocate resources away from the state and away from politicians, you have to be an entrepreneur to do so. So that's why ProViolence stresses entrepreneurship. That's why I stress entrepreneurship and a lot of the other, my co-hosts on Unloose the Goose. You know, the other key to entrepreneurship is that, you know, 
wage workers automatically have a portion of their uh, salary deducted from their earnings. That used to be called slavery. Nowadays, we call that the income tax. So entrepreneurs- Now we call it the American dream. Yeah, right. But you know, entrepreneurs are in a much better position to sort of minimize their tax burden and have control over the taxes that they pay. And obviously, there's other things that go into play, like Bitcoin you can use and, and gold and metal and stuff like that. But we'll save that for a different conversation. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because that that concept right there, the idea of moving yourself away from like wage slavery and you know running things more as your business. I was first introduced to that concept just as I was learning about libertarianism uh, through Har- Harry Brown's book, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. And I, I never even thought of it as agorism. I never even heard the word or anything like that. But but thinking of things through that filter of, oh, no, this is actually the point here is to be more free. So and this guy is actually showing me he's not telling me why he's not just like waving a sign and and saying liberty and freedom or what have you. He's actually showing me through this book all these various steps that he actually takes in his own life to actively be more free. And that was something that really inspired me to just become more involved in the whole thing. It's what excited me about the concept before before him. I I understood and agreed with the philosophy of liberty but seeing him you know lay out the case for how you can actually go about having it and seizing more freedom in your life that's what really inspired me in many ways yeah and if you know again if you think about it like all the people the real movers and shakers of the world are the entrepreneurs they're not the, the politicians right it's it's the the innovators and the entrepreneurs who who really sort of shape our society and shape culture you know, it, it, Elon Musk has had a much more significant impact on our culture than Joe Biden has. I don't think anybody could would disagree with that. Um, you know, that's not to say that these people aren't capable of doing terrible things. Obviously, they are. But, you know, if you want to sh- reshape society for a pot for the positive, then you have to sort of be an entrepreneur to do that. Otherwise, you're just sort of like a sheep. You're just sort of droning on and just, you know, paying your taxes and bleeding as, as they tell you to. I want to talk um, about another one of the examples you had mentioned earlier. Uh, you mentioned Gandhi, and Gandhi is one of my like favorite historical figures. When I when I think of Gandhi, when I think of his actions, like the, the words I think of are are like pacifism, uh, civil disobedience. But I never had really thought of the word agorism associated with Gandhi. So can you kind of kind of dive sure. into a little more about why you see Gandhi as an agorist? Gandhi is one of my all-time favorite heroes, and I dispute you your characterization of him as a passive uh, resistor, even though he classified himself as a passive resistor, because he did believe in self-defense, right? He, he didn't believe that, you know, you should just turn the other cheek, although, you know, Satyagraha was a different story, I guess, to be fair. So maybe you, you, you might be right. But I guess my point here is with, Scott, with Gandhi is that he sort of combined he was just a perfect execution of counter-economics. So let me just a brief little backstory here. Per Byland, um, really sort of uh, dissects counter-economics. And he, uh, he's got this great little article on lewrockwell.com, which I've included in my book, where he says that you can sort of break it down into two different strategies. Um, the first, he says, is like, uh, you just sort of create local production facilities that bypass state regulation. And the second is just free peer-to-peer voluntary trade, right? Unmolested un, un, uh, peer-to-peer trade. Uh, when you combine those two things, you get a very very uh, powerful counter-economic strategy. That's what Ross did. That's what Satoshi did. That's what Cody did. That's the key right there. That's also what Gandhi did, right? Gandhi convinced everybody to, look, stop paying your, this, this ridiculous salt tax. He realized that the British colonial authorities were dependent on the salt tax. He told everybody, 
Stop paying your salt tax. Come with me. We're going to march to the ocean, get our own salts, and we're going to break the British salt monopoly. And it worked. And eventually that forced the British out of, out of India. And I think that, you know, in this particular case, the ocean was the local production facility. And then, of course, the peer-to-peer voluntary trade that occurred afterwards, right in the open face of the British. The merchants were just buying and selling salts, you know, in, in violation of this British monopoly. This was how the, he, he removed the British from India. And you have this like frail old man who successfully brought the strongest empire in history to its knees without ever firing a shot or raising a fist. And he did it with counter economics, right? He did it with tax subversion, tax evasion. And uh, to me, that's just a really, really telling example, right? You know, consider his effectiveness with, this, with the Indian Congress at the time. The Indian Congress was a joke. It still is a joke to this very day. Um, and I think, you know, it just pales in comparison in terms of efficiency. And I think really, you know, he was drawing from Thoreau a lot, Gandhi. And uh, later on, Martin Luther King drew from both Gandhi and Thoreau. And really, all of these guys were like super effective at what they did at creating liberty in their own way. We can argue about King, but like, I don't know, to me, it's just it's just a much more effective way of, of fighting the state. And I think Gandhi sort of embodies that, especially with the salt satyagraha. That's why I include that whole story in in uh, anti-politics. Yeah, it's it's interesting, interesting framing, because, you know, in, in many ways, I think of agorism as as like you say, it is anti-politics as, as doing a different path than politics. But at the same time, like when you talk about certain cases like this, you know, yeah, Gandhi is doing things in an apolitical way, but he was doing it to influence the politics in a way. I mean, it did it did effectu- effectively change the politics of his current situation. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how you see this idea. This because you know, when I like I said, when I think of agorism, I just think of you know guys at Porkfest and you know people exchanging cryptocurrency. Uh, I don't think of them necessarily moving nations. And clearly, like in the example of Gandhi, he quite literally did. How can how can we apply this to our modern times? How do you see us being able to use um, agorist actions, um, the concepts of agorism, to actually move the nation, and not necessarily the, the country per se, but to actually affect uh, effectively change the politics, if not through political means? I think we're in the process of seeing it. Well, we've already seen it, right? I mean, the, you know, it, it's been massive waves of noncompliance over the past decade or two that have forced. Uh, U.S. states to liberalize their marijuana laws. So it's already starting to happen in small ways, but in a much bigger way, we're seeing it with like cryptocurrency. That to me is sort of like the coup de grace. If we can take down the central bank, if we can outcompete them, I should say, is a better word, then I think, uh, you know, that's half the battle right there. So um, it, it is reshaping. I, I'd argue that it is reshaping society, but it's only going to continue and get more extreme. And, you know, we can get into the different ways that that's happening or it will happen in the future or that we are anticipating it will happen in the future. But uh, yeah, like I think, you know, it's, it's, I would put it a little bit differently. I think it's the only thing that's ever really moved nations in a, in a certain sense, at least in a way towards Liberty. I do want to dive into where you see things going in the future, but first I want to talk a little bit more about the president. Cause I know you've been pretty critical of, um, well, I think you're probably political of political action overall, but I think you specifically have been critical of the Mises Caucus, of Dave Smith, of that strategy, of the idea of these Ron Paul people, of which you were, were slash are, or I don't know how you want to say it, a Ron Paul person. You were inspired by Ron Paul, much as I was. And uh, But you have been critical of this group of people, these 
stories, uh, many of which I would share a kinship with in the sense that I was very inspired by Ron Paul as well. But they have chosen the strategy of forming the Mises Caucus, attempting to take over the Libertarian Party. And I, I think that they have been quite successful so far and maybe will probably continue to be successful in doing so. Um, but where does that lead to? That, that's the question I have. I, as, a, as a spectator, as someone who's a podcaster who has people on to talk about this stuff, I like it in that sense because it's good podcast material and it's uh, it's entertainment. That doesn't mean I know whether it's really productive or not. So what is your take on that? And what is the, what is the basis of your your general criticism of the Mises Caucus and Dave Smith? Well, I guess you just sort of hit it hit the nail <laughs> on the head right there. It's like entertaining, but let's, you know, I don't know how productive it's going to be. And that's sort of my whole argument here. I mean, I don't know that it's not either because I was inspired by Ron Paul and he was on a stage because he was involved in politics. And I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if Ron Paul didn't sort of, I don't want to say wake me up. I was already a libertarian, but he did inspire me to speak out and be more open about my beliefs and talk about it more. So maybe Dave Smith could do that. And I'm, I'm open to the idea, but I'm open to the idea that it, it doesn't have to do anything either. So I'm kind of just right. well, an observer. <laughs> I'm I mean, watcher. you know, I guess, you know, the question of what about Ron Paul is sort of like the eternal question that's going to get thrown at agorists. So I guess maybe we should like just start there. Like, first of all, we've had millions of politicians in, in human history, millions of them, probably. I don't know. Um, we've had one good one. That's it. There's been one good one in all of human history. We've had one decent politician. To me, that is the exception and not, not the rule. Right. So it seems absurd that we should sort of base like strategy or policy on on that exception and not on the rule. Um, you know, the other thing here, too, is that Ron Paul was very good at creating libertarians. He wasn't so good at creating liberty. And I'm, I'm, I'm much more interested in the latter. Right. I'm much more interested in creating uh, liberty than libertarians. I think that's sort of what, what Per Bilan refers to as the savior complex, which I think is, is a pretty contradictory thing for a libertarian to believe right if you really truly do believe in individualism then why are you trying to save the collective right if we know that only individuals exist and why are you out there trying to save the the collective and really you know it's sort of like i don't know they they, they, they try to masquerade the mises caucus at least they try to masquerade the party as an educational institution and not a political institution but it's like you know, that's an even more utopian pipe dream. The, the idea that we're going to convince the whole world to become Rothbardians is just, I'm sorry, but that's crazy. That's, that's insane to me. We, I think it's, it's much more logical, even though it's also crazy, to say we're going to try to actually win an election. Right? You have a better chance of winning an election than convincing everybody to be Rothbardians. So it's sort of, like, it's sort of crazy to me that, um, and this is why I've been so critical of the Mises Caucus, because they've been so efficient at, at converting well, well-meaning and well-intentioned anarchists into funneling their time and energy and precious resources into unproductive ends. And a lot of people, a lot of times people will say, oh, but Sal, like, come on, like, as long as they're trying to help move the needle. And I'm like, yeah, but they're not, right? They're not moving the needle. They're, they're actually retarding the, the movement, right? They're actually, it's, it's sort of a regression if you think about it, because they're almost legitimizing the process by partaking in it. Whereas we're saying, look, this is an illegitimate process from the get-go. I want nothing to do with it. We are not, uh, except we're not negotiating our rights with terrorists in any way whatsoever. And I think sort of party politics is sort of a concession, uh, an inherent concession to negotiate your rights away, right? So once you start playing that game, then you've, you've come to the table. Whereas we, of course, we just want to get close enough to the table so we can flip it over. And I think that's sort of like the difference between the two approaches now, like the Mises Caucus, like I said, they are the reason why I've been like targeting them 
I guess you could say, um, is because they are so efficient again. And like I said, like it's almost like a, 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 what got me in trouble was that I said, I said it was sort of like a circle jerk of libertarians who, uh, of real libertarians who just get together to sort of rag on the fake libertarians, the neoliberals that are infesting the libertarian party, but they're not actually advancing the needle whatsoever. Maybe they're making themselves feel better. Maybe it's good fodder to, you know, have a good laugh about over a beer, but Again, I'm not interested in that shit. I'm actually interested in creating liberty and actually taking down the central bank. So the only way to do this is through counter economics. Political parties have never done that. Um, I guess one final point on all that is that when Ron Paul did do this, right, the limited success that he actually did have, he did under the Republican Party, right? He didn't do it as a libertarian. And there's a reason for that, right? There's because no one takes these third parties seriously, right? The, the FEC is a, is a is a cartelization device, right? They've cartelized the red market for the Republicans and Democrats. They will not allow competition in the political arena any more than, you know, uh, Wells Fargo and Chase will tolerate competition in the banking sector. So it's absurd to me that there are so many people that think that this is a viable solution, especially when we have such an obvious and clear answer in front of us. You know, we talked about the historical examples. Agorism has never failed and, and party politics has never been successful. So it's sort of absurd to me that it, this is even a, a question. You said something pretty interesting a couple of minutes ago that, that really struck with me when talking about Ron Paul and, you know, and admitting that, yes, he, he definitely made more libertarians. But did he create more liberty? And that's something I've really been thinking a lot about lately, too, um, because I started this podcast um, because I wanted more people to learn about these ideas, just like Ron Paul inspired people to learn about these ideas. I wanted to do the same thing with this podcast. Um, but when I when you, when you when you say that, when you say, you know, has he really created more liberty? I mean, I look at the past 10 years, 15 years, and do I live in a, a world of more liberty now than I did when Ron Paul created all these libertarians? I think it's very clearly not. Now, maybe I do in certain aspects of my own personal life, but in terms of the society around me, not at all. Um, so it's something that I really struggled with over the last year or year and a half or so, especially seeing the world around me and being so obviously not libertarian, uh, especially with everything that's gone on with COVID and lockdowns. Um, it doesn't even seem like there's much that's salvageable. And maybe the only thing salvageable is my own life or the life of those around me and my family, that the actions that I could actually take. And that is why I've, I have put a big shift on a focus on this show um, um, in the last year or so. And, and I've tried to just look at more, more bring on more guests and talk to more people that are actually doing something out there that are actually either displaying it themselves or teaching people ways they can actually be more free in their own lives because yes I, I love the idea of inspiring people to learn more about the ideas of liberty um, but I don't want to necessarily inspire people to just be more libertarians who read more books of Rothbard and then go back to their normal life and do everything they were doing before because then like you just said yes maybe you've created more libertarians you've created more people that listen to libertarian podcasts, which I'm, I'm in favor of, of course. You've created more people that talk about these ideas, that are excited about these ideas, but have you created any more liberty? Have have you inspired them to take actual actions in their life that create more liberty? And as you kind of mentioned before, that seems to be your biggest criticism with the Mises Caucus, not that, not that they have the wrong ideas or this or that, or that they won't even be successful. You actually said they are being successful, but they're taking away, they're inspiring people to 
take away what could be productive time spent on improving their own lives, improving their own fi- finances, uh, improving their own, uh, you know, their own liberty, their own security, what have you, and putting it all into this political thing. This, you know, spending 20, 30, I don't know what, how many hours some of these guys put into this when they could really be increasing more liberty. Instead, they're making more friends, maybe even creating more libertarians, but are they creating more liberty? And I don't have a question here, so just take it away. But that, that really struck with me. Well, no. Well, first of all, like you're right. Imagine, like, I'm sure the CIA would have preferred Satoshi Nakamoto to be like working a phone bank for Ron Paul or canvassing <laughs> the local neighborhood rather than writing the white yeah. paper, right? Like, obviously. But you make a really good point when you said before how maybe in your own life there's more liberty, but in the society at large, it's certainly less libertarian than it was ten years ago. And I think the 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 fact that your individual life has more liberty in it is a result of agorism right it's a result of bitcoin and 3d printing and all the different innovations that entrepreneurs innovative entrepreneurs have created for us right all the tools that these people have created for us to use have created more liberty in our own lives but the 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 oppression and the the tyranny that we see outside that's the result of the state and of, of politicians and that's the whole key here is understanding that Everything good comes from the counter-economics. Everything bad comes from the state. And like that's why I named the book Anti-Politics, because agorism is the opposite of politics, right? You can only have either politics or you can have economics, right? They, they're sort of, there's this constant war between the two of them. And agorism is just, we purely fall on the side of economics and just 0% on the side of, of, of politics. All right, guys, before we wrap up here, I got to let you know about one of our great sponsors, our longtime sponsors at Lauren Zadi, Italy. If you are a fan of coffee, if you like a nice fresh cup of Joe to wake up in the morning, as I do, you're going to want to check out our friends at Lauren Zadi, Italy. They deliver fine premium Italian coffees right to your door in these nice little tins that look so wonderful sitting on your counter there. And if that weren't all enough, these guys are great libertarians. They are Patreon supporters of this show. They are absolutely worthy of your support. If that all wasn't enough, these guys do more than just sell coffee. They also help other entrepreneurs set up their own coffee businesses, help them acquire equipment, acquire financing, everything they need to start their own coffee business, start their own coffee shops. So you definitely want to check them out for that reason, if that's something that's been on your mind. Either way, just fantastic people at Lorenzati, Italy. Amazing people, fantastic people. You'll want to support them if you're fans of the show. Heck, even if you're not, if you're listening to this by accident, check them out anyway. They have great coffee. Lauren Zotti, Italy. You can find them at laurenzotti.coffee. That's L-O-R-E-N-Z-O-T-T-I dot coffee. And you do not want to forget your Lions of Liberty listener discount. Just use discount code ROAR for 10% off your order. Just to play a little uh, devil's advocate here, I'll play a little, little Dave Smith's advocate here. Uh, what Dave might say uh, was that, with that, like, look, we're in a different time than than 2008. This is a, a world of the internet where, you know, and even even Ron, even Ron Paul, a lot of his success, even though he was on a, a debate stage on mainstream TV, his actual success, his actual, the way he got boosted so much was by people organizing and gathering on the internet. Um, and he might say, look, yes, maybe it's not the same path. It's a libertarian party instead of the Republican party. 
party. Uh, but this path, if I'm successful, I am going to be reaching a lot more people because when when you have that you nail know, phrase, libertarian party presidential candidate or presidential candidate, you're simply going to get on more shows. Maybe they're going to bring you on more shows to try to mock you, but you're going to have that opportunity to get in front of more people. And he might say, Sal, look, you got inspired because you happened upon Ron Paul in this debate. What's so terrible about, about millions of people perhaps happening upon what I'm saying? And some of those people, a good number of those people may go on to become Agoras themselves. Joe the Agoras, Dave the Agoras, Sarah the Agoras, etc. So what's so wrong with that if inspiring people to learn about these ideas can lead them to become Agoras? And if there's more Agoras, more people exchanging cryptocurrency, isn't that just better for everybody? Yeah, for sure. And I don't, I don't deny that it's possible for, uh, you know, Dave to go up there and, and, and to uh, sort of make a mockery of the system and, and turn people into like radical libertarians and stuff like that. And that's wonderful. And I hope that, that I hope that that happens. But at the same time, I question what sort of message uh, I question the idea that anybody, any message that is sent through a political institution, a political agent, a political entity, right, must be received through that lens, right? So it's received through the lens of political authoritarianism. So I don't know that you can really promote liberty from a political stage. I think it's sort of like a contradiction. Like, that's almost like promoting, I, I, I've almost I've worn out this example, but it's like promoting chastity from a whorehouse, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like promoting cardiovascular health from like the lung cancer ward of the hospital, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Um, Obviously, look, that's possible. I hope it happens. I think that the likelihood of that happening is so absurdly minuscule that it doesn't justify the amount of resources that a campaign, a political campaign requires. I think that those resources would be much, we get, we as, as libertarians would get much more bang for our buck by putting those resources into the counter economy and into entrepreneurship and, and innovation. All right. So let's, let's dive into that then. For people listening now, I think a lot of people, you know, I think it's it's difficult sometimes for a lot of people to th- start thinking about ways they can act in their lives, because even when we've learned so much about the ideas of liberty, uh, we know so much about why the non-aggression principle is the right way and why governments are violating it and how terrible that is. Um, we still have been raised in this system, this system that taught us to get these skills so we can get this job so we can work for this employer so we can buy these houses and have this family and many people are already very much entrenched in that they have the mortgage they have the family they have the house they have the regular job what are some basic steps that people can start to take to begin shifting themselves even if it's just in little ways here and there from this sort of you know working within the system life to a more agorist life, if not, because none of this stuff can really happen overnight. Like I said, especially when we've you know grown up in the system so much. But what are just a couple ways people could sort of start? So what I what I try to tell people who want to get started with agorism is three simple keys: uh, grow your own food, become your own bank, and get yourself a three D printer. And if you can do those three things, then you're you're, you're better off than ninety percent of the population. Um, and we can go into like all three of those different things specifically, but. Um, you know, in truth, the fact the fact of the matter is, do whatever works for you. If it if it means homesteading, then do that. If it means uh, you know going to your local farmers market and selling whatever little good you have to market, and you're going to sell that for for silver coins or for cryptocurrency, that's wonderful. Do that, right? If you have chickens, you could sell eggs. Whatever you could do, um, do what works for you. But if you really are looking for something specifically, 
I would say to, you know, try to remove yourself from the fiat monetary system. That's the most important, that's the, the most powerful play that we have is to be your own bank and to sort of debank yourself from the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, fiat, whatever you can even call that. But uh, get yourself a 3D printer. If you, if, if you have a 3D printer, if we, if we can get a 3D printer in every workshop in America, on every desk in America, on every tabletop, then the gun control debate is like, just gone. It's over with. We're not even discussing it at that point. It doesn't matter what laws they pass in terms of gun rights, because we all have the, we all have a, a sort of localized manufacturing, uh, manufacturing facility uh, in our, in our homes. So they, they can't stop these things. Um, How easy is it to get a 3d printer? Very simple. You go to 3d printer, and you can buy one with cryptocurrency. You can actually avoid uh, using a KYC payment platform. That's, that's why we created the site. How many R's in Burr there? <laughs> Three R's, okay. B-R-R-R. And like the third thing is to grow your own food, right? Because a lot of times people like, oh, you silly agorist, you think you're going to fight the state by growing potatoes. But it's, you know, if you look throughout history, one of the most common tactics the state has of oppressing people is to starve them out, right? This is what the, the, this is what the Lincolnians did to the Americans at Vicksburg. This is what uh, Churchill did uh, in World War II. So this is a very common tactic that politicians use. So you need food security. And, you know, the easiest way to do that is to grow your own food, use aquaponics, get yourself some of those Mylar bags, whatever you could do. But food security is key. Monetary security is key. And personal security is key. Yeah, I mean, the food thing in particular, to me, that's that's actually like to me, that's actually even easier than maybe even setting up a crypto wallet or something, because right. anybody could just go buy a couple supplies and just grow tomatoes, like uh, even if you live in an apartment. You could go to the produce section of your local grocery store, get a piece of fruit and then, you know, harvest the seeds from that and start a little garden. You know what I mean? So uh and there's all sorts of opportunities. People say, well, I'm a sell. I'm in an urban environment. I can't do that. But you know, check out guys like Curtis Stone and Alex Utopium who are doing these things from an urban setting very successfully. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so why don't we talk about, we've talked about the present, we've talked about the past. Why don't we get into the future? Where do you see um, things going in terms of how individuals, individuals practicing agorism, uh, groups of people working together practicing agorism, what ways do you see this affecting the world we live in in the next However you want, 20, 30 years, because I'll still be alive then, but even even further beyond that, if you want to go well into the hopefully, future. Hopefully we'll be alive. You yeah. never know. Um, well, we no, never know. know. I mean, like, t- tomorrow could be my last day and your, yours or yours for all we know. So that's why it's words. important to get as much to take these actions now. And I think that's it's it's easy for me to say because there's a million actions I could have taken that I haven't for whatever excuses I make up. I got to work today. I got to do this. I got to do that. But I do try to remind myself that our time here is limited. So why not start now? Because that's, any day you wait is that it might be the day you waited too long. And that, that's, that's true of all of us, right? There's always something more, something else that we could do. Um, but, you know, when you say, like, where, where is this all going? I think it's going towards freedom. Right? I'm very optimistic that we win. At the end of the day, we're going to win. Um, again, like, check out Konkin's four phases of the Agorist Revolution. He really divides it up pretty nicely. But um, in terms of, like, specific counter-economics, I really foresee this sort of coming battle between the state and the, the cryptocurrency community. I don't think that they're going to go down without a fight in terms of, uh, you know, losing their, their monopoly on, on the money commodity. That's going to get really ugly. And I think it's going to shake a lot of people out of the market when they see how willing the state is to, to, to protect that cartel. 
but uh, like I said, I'm, optim- I'm, I'm very optimistic. Another like really exciting thing that I don't think a lot of people are paying enough attention to is this whole coming wave of tokenization. I think like we see like NFTs, like non-fungible tokens with like art and music and stuff like that. All the NFT stuff just feels, it feels so bubbly to me. You know, it feels like, oh, yeah. everyone's got an NFT now. I mean, I, and I have no technical analysis to break that down further, but that's just the feeling I get from a lot of it. I, I, I disagree. I think that it's not a bubble. I think it's sort of a, a, a wave of what's to come, a sort of little like a foreshadowing of what's to come. I, I really believe in my heart of hearts that everything will be tokenized. I think if you keep doing this podcast long enough, I'd be willing to bet that this podcast is one day tokenized. Um, and, you know, I, that's true of all sorts of things. But in terms of agorism, I'm really excited about the tokenization of securities and assets because I think that that will sort of disintermediate uh, the, the FINRA cartel, which is just a brokerage cartel maintained by the SEC in a compulsory fashion. But once individuals start tokenizing... Well, what, what is FINRA exactly for people like me who don't, who don't know what it is? So FINRA is, is a, a, a cartel of brokers that is maintained by the SEC. So in other words, if you want to buy or sell a security, you have to go through a FINRA approved uh, broker or dealer right so that, that's the whole idea there and then of course that that you know we know as libertarians and as austrians that that drives up the costs you know you're limiting supply and so on and so forth and you're decreasing the quality of the service so what i'm what i'm exciting what i'm pr- trying to promote right now is that instead of doing this instead of registering your business right with with finra tokenize your business on chain, tokenize your business and then distribute those tokens. And of course, this isn't advice. This is all terribly illegal. So don't do any of this. I'm not still not (laughs) suggesting this for any of the police listening, but you could, if you theoretically tokenize your business and then distribute those tokens uh, on like say a decentralized exchange, right? The same way that someone would distribute shares of their company. So once people start to do that, once everybody figures that out, which is, you know, in the process of happening now, then the days of FINRA and SEC are very limited. And I think that that is going to unleash a wave of capital and innovation, unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And I'm really excited. And that's just one small aspect of what's to come with tokenization. We're also tokenizing content, right, with things like Mines. Um, Minds.com, where you know you own the, your, your content rather than Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. Uh, we're also going to tokenize private data like your health records. That's already being done with uh, dope.com, dope tokens, where you can uh, actually grant uh, these grant healthcare professionals access to your medical records. And in exchange, you receive dope tokens, which can then be exchanged for real medical services like telemedicine, stuff like that. So we're going to decentralize the shit out of everything. And we aren't going to leave everything in our wake until these politicians are in labor camps where they belong. I think I've got the title of this episode, Sal. Decentralize the shit out of everything. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Uh, Sal, like bef- it. before I let you go, I, I want you to uh, speak a little more about the book, Anti-Politics. It was perfect timing. Uh, just yesterday, I saw it drop. I already have it on my Kindle. I, I have not gotten through the whole thing, but I have been uh, been giving it a read. And it's, it's basically a collection of just uh, a lot of writings that well speak to the idea of anti-politics. So if you just want to describe a little more what inspired the book, how you put it together, take it away. Well, it's funny. I actually, what inspired the book was when the Mises Caucus blocked me on social media. <laughs> oh, I was really? like, I have to, I, I have to reach these guys somehow. How am I going to do it? Well, like, they can't block, they can't block a book, right? So, I came up with this idea, and it's, what, what inspired like said, them? To, was it a specific something you said that that inspired them to block you? Yeah, I, I called them. I called it a circle jerk, oh, and they, they didn't like that. Okay. Yeah, so that was what got me blocked from them. So. 
here we are. So antipod, yeah, it's now just a, a collection book, of collection of Agora's essays. I divided it into uh, four sections: what we believe, what we oppose, anti-politics in theory, and then anti-politics in practice. Uh, everybody from Konkin to Hess to Byland. There's even some Rothbard in there, surprisingly. Uh, Benjamin Tucker. I wrote some of the articles. Alex Utopium. Uh, I really am happy with the way it came out. I think uh, what, once you told me that you had, you DM'd me and you're like, oh, I found a little error. And I started reading it. And like, I found like another one. And I'm like, fuck, like, shit. But yeah, I found one typo. I'm not going to tell you guys where it is because hopefully it'll be fixed by the time you read the book. I found another one. So I, I, I think I'm just going to leave it because I don't actually care that much. I'll, I'll, I think it's, you know, it makes it unique. So make a contest. But yeah, people can find the, the typos that we're talking about. They can, I don't know. They're going to sign copy. How about there, that? there you go. We just made up a contest <laughs> there. <laughs> Awesome, uh, Sal. Well, thanks so much for joining me, man. It's a blast uh, learning more about you, learning more about your thoughts about agorism. Um, before I let you go, of course, just give everybody the full run through. Uh, obviously, people know how to find books, Amazon or wherever. But if you, I don't know if there's another way they can buy it directly through you, maybe through cryptocurrency. I like to think so, being the agorist you are. And feel free to plug everything else you got going on. I wish they could. And I, that was my original intention with the book. But honestly, Bezos makes it so easy mm-hmm. to to publish with KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing, that it's just, it doesn't make financial sense to do it otherwise. The free market has become up with a solution so powerful that it even drew you away from your ear yes, Exactly. <laughs> Correct. Um, but yeah, so Anti-Politics is the book. You can find that on Amazon. It's an ebook or paperback. Uh, com is where you can find everything else podcasts, blogs, and I'm on all of your favorite social media platforms, either Sally Gorst or at Sally Mayweather and don't forget to subscribe to the Agora and Unloose the Goose. Alright Sal, it's been a blast keep up the great work, I know you will, keep on roaring Thank you brother Live long And live free